Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Timothy Fry, the Marshall Shulman Professor of Political Science at Columbia University. He is the author of the just-published Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia, just out from uh, Princeton University Press. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I I read your book with great interest. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners will as well. I think they really ought to. Uh, So many of the, I'm not going to call them misconceptions because people, reasonable people will disagree, but so many of the conceptions about Putin and Russia have, you argue, kind of ossified into a a very rigid uh, uh, prejudice or or stereotype that that you would argue based on your research uh, about politics in Russia is just uh, just inaccurate. And, you know, one of the things I was uh, uh, thinking about as I, as a historian, was reading your book is comparing that historians generally work on one area. Political scientists generally have a much more comparative approach. And I think this really comes out so well in your book that you're comparing uh, Putin to other authoritarian leaders in your book. And once you go down that path of political scientist, then it, it, it seems to be uh, dramatically different. How did you kind of come upon this comparative approach of classifying? I think it's in the core of political science, but you get to say that, not me. The comparative approach to looking at at Putin in terms of other authoritarian leaders. So uh, it's a great question and a great framing. Uh, You know, I came to comparative politics via Russian language and literature. So that's my first degree. And I spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. So my route to looking at Russia via a comparative lens uh, was long in the making. Um, I think for many people in comparative uh, politics, you know, the first thing they do when they look at a country is start trying to compare, you know, is this country like this country? How does it differ from that country? And there's a danger there in not having a really firm grasp of the material uh, in the country that you're focusing on. So I was fortunate to be able to devote my undergraduate research and much of my graduate research on a single case. Um, And the Soviet Union being arguably a lot more unique than uh, Russia, which, as I argue in the book, is a lot more like uh, some other uh, autocracies, um, is, uh, is uh, I just wanted to give people a different frame for thinking about Russia than the two most common frames that are used. One is to think about Russia as driven by its unique history and culture. And obviously, there's a lot to that approach. Another approach tries to reduce Russian politics to Putin's personality and career path. Uh, And I think those views are really dominant in popular discourse about Russia. Uh, But in political science, they are, I think, minority views. Uh, And the much more common view is to think about Russia in relation to other authoritarian regimes. So part of the agenda in this book is bringing this different way of thinking about Russia to a broader audience. And you you refer to it, I think, uh, nicely introduce the problem and say, listen, there's a disconnect here 
there's a disconnect between the image of Russia in the popular imagination, so to speak, and how the professionals, at least the professional political scientists, uh, uh, with their green eye shades on, which is a, a banking reference, but basically <laughs> an interesting academic, and you, you take to task academic political science for part of the problem for not getting the word out well enough. And I thought that was quite interesting and, and that you're trying to rectify that to some extent by making what is uh, kind of standard analytical conclusions in the political science trade more popularly available. Yeah. And I'm guilty as charged. I mean, the first three books uh, that I wrote were really for uh, an academic audience there's nothing wrong with that. There's a place for that kind of research. That's how uh, we make our bones. Um, but at the same time, particularly in a moment when U.S.-Russia relations are at such a nadir, um, when I was writing the book, uh, the Trump-Putin connection was uh, bringing to the surface a lot of the worst kind of cliches and simplifications about Russia and Russian politics. So as I was writing the book, you know, that was what I was reacting to. Um, and, you know, I hope that when people come away from the book, they have a slightly more nuanced uh, view about Russia. And I know it's very difficult to change people's minds about Russia. They have very strong views one way or another. But the hope here is by presenting what I think is some of the most cutting edge academic research on a host of issues in Russian politics, people will come away from the book with a little bit greater appreciation of the difficulties and the complexities of governing, governing a country like Russia. So let, let's get to it. That's really the issue. The, the cartoonish description of R Russia in the popular media. And I'll take a, I'll, I'll throw myself under the bus here in terms of the historical profession particularly those in the historical profession who tend to see more continuities than uh, uh, ruptures or developments in Russian history is it's a pretty, pretty dark picture. And uh, there's plenty of reason to be dark about it, but, but maybe, maybe the historians are a little too dark. Instead, you, I'm not going to say you soften it up, but you do contextualize it. And you talk about how this system, this uh, system that is perceived to be autocratic and, and very, very dark is in fact a lot more constrained, limited, um, uh, conflicted uh, inside on almost every level, whether it's economic management, political management. And you use some, I think, pretty compelling examples that, again, a historian might have an indifferent interpretation of them, of, say, the elections. But we'll, we'll get to that. But that, in fact, it's, it's much more of a constrained system, not the, the boogeyman that, uh, uh, that it is popularly perceived about. In social science terms, you know, describe your notion of a, a personal autocracy as opposed to a party or military and, and how Russia fits into that personal autocracy system. So let me take the, the first part of your, uh, your, your statement uh, first. I think it's very common for people to conflate the notion that Putin has no political rivals of any you know, serious scale uh, and has not had one for you know, quite some time, the ease with which he dispatched of uh, Navalny most recently um, is really clear evidence that he is a strong man, that he faces no serious political rivals. But that's not the same thing as saying that one can get people to do what you want them to do. Uh, 
or that one doesn't face all kinds of difficult trade-offs. Um, for example, you know, if you think about the economy, uh, Putin uses corruption to reward his inner circle, um, uh, and they become fabulously wealthy uh, because of this. At the same time, he can't allow them to steal so much that the economy collapses uh, and people take to the street. Uh, if you think about, you know, information manipulation, uh, you know, Russia is a well-educated country. They're, this isn't the first time they've dealt with a well-oiled propaganda machine. And there has to be enough credibility mixed in with uh, the propaganda so that people keep watching uh, the television and keep listening uh, to state radio. Um, he needs, in some sense, to use anti-Westernism to rile the base, uh, particularly within, among the conservative hawkish members of the elite, but not so much that it actually provokes a war. Uh, and on elections, he needs to you know, cheat enough so that he's confident that he wins, but not cheat so much that he looks weak. Um, so uh, in all these areas, I'm trying to paint a picture of Putin that gets us beyond this view of uh, him is able to snap his fingers and the bureaucracy jumps or the Russian people jump, or they just follow Putin, um, uh, 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 you know, follow Putin's orders. Um, An unlimited autocracy. Yes, it, without, without considering their own interests. I mean, Putin has to persuade people. He has to threaten people to do things. Uh, sometimes he has to convince them that his position is better. He has to persuade them. And at the end of the day, when those tools fail, then he turns to uh, repression. So even just thinking in this, in this way is a different, um, uh, gives a different flavor, I think, to Russian politics than the usual view of Putin just able to, you know, push a button and then, you know, his political opponents disappear, push another button and the election results are, are, are what they are, you know, push another button and, you know, uh, uh, the elections in the U.S. are overturned. Um, I just want to play out how much more difficult that is in reality when you're governing a country of, you know, 11 time zones and a 146 million people. And, 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 you know, someone might push back and say, well, you know, Nemtsov is still dead. Navalny's still in prison. Yeah, and yeah. so many others are in the West uh, or, or are deceased. Does it matter whether that was uh, difficult to do or easy to do? It was still, it was still done. So yeah. uh, it, it may be that there's not as much disagreement as just shades of gray and additional meaning that you're, you're adding. Right. Yeah. So one thing I would say is if we look at, you know, the first two, three terms of, of uh, Putin in office, uh, the mode of governing was very different uh, than we've seen in the last five years. If in the first two terms, the size of the economy doubled, uh, his popularity ratings uh, soared, um, uh, poverty went down. Uh, and it's not surprising that it was easy for him to win elections and be a popular leader. Um, his popularity started to go down. The annexation of Crimea, again, shoots it uh, up into the 80s. But in the last five years, we see that the, his tools for governing have become much less effective. So 
people are watching less state television and tuning into social media more to get their news. Um, election falsification has had to be used on a much greater scale in recent elections than in past elections, including just not allowing people to run, which seems to be the strategy, you know, particularly that will be used uh, uh, in September. Um, he can't turn to easy foreign policy victories. There's no way to replicate the success of Crimea. There's no issue out there that would really uh, unite the people in the same way. And the economy has been flat uh, for a decade, and living standards are about 10% lower today uh, than they were in 2012. Uh, so what the book tries to show is, you know, autocrats like Putin have a variety of different techniques for rule. And what the book shows is we've seen a, a big shift in Putin over time from these relatively uh, light touch tools like personal popularity and economic growth to a much more uh, heavy handed use of repression and restriction on on political rights. Let, let, before we get into each of those, the popularity, the elections, the economy, I just want to go back to the double-edged sword, which is being a personal autocrat. Yeah. Uh, autocrat. Yeah. And uh, as you say, the book, uh, in, in your book that uh, early on, that that the standard interpretation, either the Putinology version or the Russia's always a mess, has been a mess, will always be a mess uh, mm-hmm. school of thought, that they both uh, overlook and underplay the role of society and that there is a society to be dealt with, and that uh, that Putin is uh, both at the top of institutions, but also st- subject to the efficacy of those institutions, and they tend to be weak institutions, so getting things done is very, very hard. Being an efficient autocrat is not Russia's fate, it's an inefficient autocracy. You have also these trade-offs between the various elites. He poses them against each other or against society, and there's only so much of the pie, and he, as you say, he can only divide it in certain ways. And then I think you may get the most pushback when you talk about the tools of coercion. You're, you are a, a little bit lighter on the tools of coercion than maybe is clearly is the case in the Western media, which is, tends to focus on a lot of people fall out of windows in Russia all the time. I mean, it's you, any, anywhere near a controversy and your likelihood of falling out of a window is pretty high. If, if not worse, uh, Allah and Nemtsov and, and, and others. But the, the end up picture in each of these cases is is this gray area? Let's start with the first one, and you mentioned it already, and that's uh, Putin's popularity. So the standard interpretation would be it's all fake, etc. But you you make an argument doing a, reviewing a lot of data, uh, polling data, and you address the fact that the polling data itself is is complicated. It requires addressing itself, and you've participated. It looks like you've designed a bunch of these polls over the years. Uh, participated with uh, uh, Russian pollsters. That the popularity story isn't quite as one-sided uh, as as it's assumed to be in the West. Can you kind of provide an overview of that? Yeah, sure. So Russia is a great case for studying autocracy um, compared to Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, Venezuela, and lots of the Central Asian states in part because you have a well-educated public, you have strong Russian scholars writing about uh, uh, politics who are well-trained, and you have reliable public opinion polling, or much more reliable than we see um, uh, in other autocracies. And I think people tend to focus on this headline number of Putin's approval rating, um, which is really a crude measure because it's just a yes or no question about whether you approve of Putin. And when you start to peel back 
the popularity ratings and ask more nuanced and sophisticated questions, you know, the picture becomes a lot more complicated. Um, you know, most Russians about Putin are in this category of, well, I can't say anything bad about him or I can't say anything good about him rather than I have this great enthusiasm for him uh, or, or that I, uh, I really uh, dislike him. You know, uh, for a long time, Russians were um, appreciative of the, the fact that their living standards increased dramatically while Putin uh, was in power. You know, a lot of this had to do with reasons beyond Putin's control, like the massive increase um, uh, in oil prices. But, you know, that's and the, the, the way- rebound from the, the 90s. That is anyone who's going to come in after the 90s exactly. will look Ex- somewhat better than. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I often say, let's flip. The record low prices, oil prices of the 1990s with the record high oil prices of the 2000s. And let's see, let, let's play that out and think about how Russian history might look, uh, you know, might look quite different on a, you know, a factor that's largely beyond the control of, uh, uh, largely beyond the control of the Kremlin. Um, another interesting uh, bit of data is that while Putin's approval ratings are still in the, the mid-60s, Levada Center is also asked a question repeatedly that uh, asks Russians to name five politicians that they trust. Uh, and Putin's, uh, uh, in 2017, uh, about 60% of Russians named Putin as one of the five politicians they said that they could trust. Um, uh, today, that number is about... Uh, one in three. Uh, so there's clearly something going on that people's trust in Putin um, has gone down. And even if you look at questions uh, related to whether or not Putin should run for office again in 2024, um, as many Russians oppose this move as support it. So this notion that uh, there is this deep well of popularity for Putin um, or that there is some culturally ingrained feature that likes the stability, the strong hand that Putin supposedly brings to Russia, you know, it doesn't really hold up when we look at the data a little bit more carefully. And so it's a mix again, that there, uh, uh, there is data that you feel you can work with and it's not 100% uh, everyone uh, wants to have nothing to do with him or 100% to support him. It is a yeah. reasonable gray. Yeah, and uh, the the inter- one interesting thing is the the Kremlin itself does a ton of polling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they are by far the largest uh, purchaser of polling data from a variety of different companies, and I think that does tell you something about uh, their concern uh, about the possibility of you know, Russians taking to the streets. What 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 efforts do they take to get valid polling data, though? Well, I've seen some of the, the data that they uh, use, and um, uh, it's gotten better over time. Uh, for a long time, it was not very good. Um, I'm sure they're using the same techniques uh, that we used in 2015 and 2016 to try to figure out whether or not respondents were lying when they asked the Putin uh, approval question. Um, so they've they've gotten better over time, but just the scale of uh, public opinion research that they do, you know, every few weeks they're doing samples of a thousand people in each of the regions in Russia, and that's a really big operation. 
So a lot of this leads up to the, the, the question of elections, which I think to the Western eye is really, uh, unschooled Western eye is, is uh, puzzling. Why would an autocrat bother with elections and then get so, so agitated? Currently, for those of you who may not be Russian specialists, in preparation for elections, Russia is locking every, pretty much everyone up that they can in preparation for an election. And it's a fascinating tale. Why do they care so much about elections when they have the option of just locking everyone up? And it, it is, uh, despite the notion of an autocracy, you make the argument that you know there is a degree of perceived legitimacy associated with them, quote, winning the election, but they can't win it by so much that it it's delegitimizes it. So again, they're they're tacking in uh, uh, this narrow path to try to uh, maximize legitimacy, but using a tool, elections, which isn't usually associated with autocracy. It's a fascinating uh, chapter. Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of research done on elections under autocracies, why they hold them, what are the effects. And one school of thought is that autocrats like elections in part because it divides the opposition. It forces them to compete amongst themselves rather than creating a unified bloc. It also allows autocrats to co-opt some members of the opposition. And so we have the, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, the Liberal Democratic Party, and just Russia. They're happy to be these nominal opposition parties in parliament, even though they have very little power. And you know, almost all of their funding comes from the Russian state. So their opportunity for even trying to be a, a legitimate, viable opposition uh, is quite limited. And as we look, oh, one of the interesting things over time is how the playing field for elections in Russia have become so much more tilted so that if in the 2000, 2004, 2008, one could plausibly argue that the Kremlin was able to win a more or less honest majority, even with a lot of the fiddling around that went on in those elections. Uh, um, by uh, you know 2018, uh, we see you know much higher rates of uh, electoral manipulation, and I think in this current round of parliamentary elections this spring, the you know the Kremlin's not even pretending anymore. Uh, there's not uh, going to be any uh, independent opposition in the, the upcoming uh, elections in September. Ceased worrying about the legitimacy factor or uh, yeah. attributed less to the legitimacy factor than they have in the past yes. because? Uh, well, because? I think they would prefer to be popular enough so that they could be confident that they would get 40, 50, 60% of the votes without having to falsify, without having to to uh, repress people and to keep them off the ballot. You know, that's a much more persuasive story uh, to tell. Um, whereas if we look at a case like Belarus last uh, summer, uh, where it was just implausible that uh, Lukashenko could have won 82% of the votes. And even in Belarus, which is hardly a hotbed of political activity, we've seen you know, massive protests and that's something that autocrats try to avoid. So one, one of the things that just kind of a historical point was this kind of uh, the stakes got high in 2011, that the they almost lost an election in 2011. And since then, there's been the shift towards, you know, trying to navigate this balance between legitimacy and control. 
since 2011, it's been moving steadily in the direction of control because they can't risk actually losing the election, which they came very close to doing in 2011. Do you want to kind of summarize that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, to 2011, we see these massive protests against voter fraud, against corruption, and against Putin that really shook uh, Moscow. Uh, and they, you know, continued for six months uh, until Putin was reelected president in, uh, in in 2012 and then inaugurated in May uh, 2012. And what we've seen is in each subsequent election, the barriers to running for office have increased. Um, the limits on campaigning have uh, increased. Um, the ability of opposition candidates to find space to hold rallies has narrowed. Um, and even in 2018, when there were uh, municipal elections uh, in, in in Moscow, I'm sorry, summer of 2019, when there were municipal elections in Moscow for a body that has very little uh, uh, power, uh, you know, the the uh, Moscow city government went out of its way uh, to ensure that uh, the pro-government party would have enough seats. Um, uh, uh, to hold, to have a majority. Um, and uh, what we've seen since that time is only, um, only increasing barriers. For example, many people are worried uh, about multiple day voting, which makes it very difficult for independent uh, organizations to monitor uh, how the votes are counted and how they're protected. But really the big issue in the fall elections is just the uh, uprooting of Navalny's organization and other independent opposition figures and preventing them from uh, from running for office. Well, we're, we're taping this in uh, late June, so we'll have an opportunity. This interview will be available for many, many months and, and generally they have a long tail. So we, you have an opportunity to put out your forecast. If you want, you don't have to, and we'll be able to listen. But, you know, the, the stakes, uh, it just seems uh, that, again, there has been this trajectory over the past 10 right. years away from uh, meaningful elections. And uh, that that does highlight the weak part of the strongman thesis uh, right. that uh, they still want the uh, legitimacy of elections, but they just can't tolerate them uh, right. being the, remotely open. And the problem for these personalist autocrats, uh, as opposed to military-led uh, autocracies or party-led autocracies, is that there's no soft landing pad. So mil military regimes, uh, the generals can go back to the barracks. One-party regimes, the leader can go back to the party. Uh, but what we see in these personalist autocracies like we see in Russia, where a single individual is really responsible for policy decisions and high-level personnel decisions, is that when they lose office, they tend to lose. The people around them tend to lose big, and they tend to end up uh, in exile, in jail, or dead. Um, so the stakes for a transfer of power in Russia are really, really high, and that's one of the reasons um, why uh, we see uh, the, the Kremlin willing to go to such extremes in order to stay to stay in power. This raises an issue which you, you do not in your book. It's separate, but you know the, uh, these types of aut aut uh, autocracies tend to be sclerotic after a certain point yeah. because they can't afford to retire literally, and that just leads to uh, worse and worse decision making across the board, not just about politics but economic development. Yeah. And uh, the the end becomes much more 
dramatic, if not uh, violent, as a consequence of that. And you know, I people who ask me, familiar with my background, you know, about the so-called you know threat from Russia in one way or another. So you know, mostly Russia is a threat to itself at this point, uh, yep. my, my opinion. But uh, and that seems to be characteristic of these regimes where they can't effectively transfer power to another generation. Yeah, I mean, in one of the, the, the paradoxes of personalist autocracies is that the way you become a personalist autocrat is by usurping authority from other institutions like high courts, uh, the parliament, uh, political parties, regional governments. Um, but these are all good things when you want to try to step down because these are the organizations that can protect you from your successor uh, uh, but, you know, having become a personalist autocrat, it, you've weakened them so much uh, that they can't really uh, protect you. And so there have been cases where autocrats have tried to, uh, for example, create parliamentary systems uh, before they step down as a way to, um, uh, you know, protect themselves or to make them senators for life. Uh, With that's immunity. really yeah. With immunity. But of course, once they start to make those plans, they really reveal their weakness and only make them uh, more of a target for their inner circle or for the mass public who senses weakness. Yeah. Uh, let's let's keep moving on. The, the characteristic characterization of sort of weak, strong man and degree of control and the uh, positives and negatives associated with that extends to the economy. Uh, where you have a nice phrase that, you know, Russia's not as strong, but not as weak as it appears. A lot of uh, quotes at the beginning about uh, we're going to be the top five, we're going to be in the top five, we're going to be in the top five, and the date for that continues to be putting off. For, there were two stages of development, and, you know, it's basically pre-Crimea and post-Crimea, where the trajectory for Russia from 2000 to 2013 was, was uh, uh, very positive, coming off the lows of the 90s. And then it's just been sideways or downward for the last seven years. And there's, there's just not, it is an imperfectly controlled economy, to say the least. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, you, we should recognize that the Kremlin did a decent job of managing the massive inflows of petrodollars uh, uh, and not allowing them to spark inflation or to, you know, be spent on uh, really wasteful uh, uh, projects. So, you know, um, Putin benefited from the high oil prices. He also benefited from the devaluation of 1998, which made, you know, Russian exports much more um, uh, competitive. Uh, but since, uh, you know, really 2011, when you start to see the slowdown, um, Russia really is unable to generate the kinds of internal dynamic economic growth that is really critical in a 21st century, uh, particularly for a country like Russia, which has a large internal market, uh, which is located relatively close to uh, uh, the wealth of Europe, which would be a, a natural uh, a trading partner. Um, and uh, uh, it's a relatively urban society. Uh, it's relatively wealthy compared to some of the other uh, personalist autocracies nearby, uh, but they've, but because of the political system that they have, uh, the unconstrained autocrat and uh, his um, minions or cronies, whatever we want to call them, uh, uh, they're able to intervene 
and to violate people's property rights uh, in ways that encourage capital flight uh, and human flight. So we see a lot of great talent, human talent leaving Russia, going to Silicon Valley or working uh, as technical analysts on Wall Street. You know, the level of uh, capital flight from Russia is, you know, just really well documented. And Putin has tried hard to bring capital back to Russia and to make it difficult um, to export capital without, uh, you know, without tremendous uh, uh, success. What was so, the name of the, the campus, the, the Stanford, oh, MIT, Skolkova? Yeah, yeah that, uh, that's a, uh, an epic fail, if I'm not mistaken. That did yeah, not that was out. really a Medvedev project mm-hmm. that was an attempt to marry Russia's strong, high, you know, ag- upper-level academic institutions with its you know, tech sector, which you know, has some really talented people and, some, some, and had some decent companies uh, at the time. Uh, but, you know, the ability to translate those gains, uh, uh, those two assets into real economic gains was frustrated in large part um, by weak property rights uh, and the state taking over an increasing role in uh, the tech sector. I mean, you have two tech companies. Russia was one of the, is one of the few countries where uh, the largest Internet company the uh, largest search engine is not Google, but Yandex, and the largest uh, you know social media page is is, is not uh, Facebook, but Contactia, uh, and those companies have both you know really suffered from uh, state predation. These are real homegrown success stories uh, that were um, you know really taken over by the state ultimately. I think for for a lot of people who've gone through you know PPE at Oxford or. or, or political economy in the United States, the term and definition of political economy in, in Russia is quite unique in modern political economy with the, the oligarchs, the Siloviki and corporate rating, a different definition of the term than we're used to in the West, but, you know, fascinating material in your, in your chapter. And then let, let's turn, uh, before we wrap it up to a couple of the, the also high profile elements of this weak autocracy, which don't appear particularly weak, uh, repression. And you, you know, you use an old Russian anecdote about, uh, uh, you know, uh, beat with sticks and then uh, go to beat with carrots. So they're carrots and sticks, but they're just beaten with both. And that seems to be, you know, very Dostoevsky in approach. So they're suffering and then followed by more suffering, maybe a little bit of redemption at the end, but it uh, doesn't make up for the 600 pages of suffering. Uh, the one part of the repression machine, which I think a lot of our listeners will be fascinated by, they, they do see the headlines about Navalny and some of them know about Nemtsov, but the degree to which the legal system is employed, the legalism of the autocracy has always fascinated me as a historian. And it's again, a little bit like the elections. Why go through all the bother? If you even consider Navalny's fate, the amount of court time, paperwork involved in putting the guy in jail, which could have been done in five minutes, it spent just reams of paper and hundreds of hours of court time to having the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And that seems to be part of a, a trait of, of Russian legalism uh, and deployed for repressive purposes. Do you want to describe that a little bit? I, yeah, I, uh, this, um, yeah, this is called autocratic legalism. And it's uh, um, uh, Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore was one of the, f- one of the first real 
practitioners of this where, you know, political opponents were not put in jail because of their political views, but because, you know, they had tax problems or they, uh, you know, violated some uh, uh, bank fire agreements. Code. Fire, the fire codes, code exactly. in, their, in their building. Yeah, it happens all Exa- the time. Exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, we see this in Hungary, Turkey. Um, as well. And it's really become a common feature of modern autocracy. But I I think Russia has really, uh, uh, if not perfected it, used it most extensively. I mean, if we think about Navalny's case, he's not in jail because of his political activity, right? He's in jail because he violated parole. He violated parole because he was poisoned and then uh, sought medical help in Germany and failed to meet with his parole officer. Uh, so this is the basis on which he is serving uh, his two and a half years, which will uh, almost certainly be a lot longer uh, than two and a half years. If he survives. And, if he survives. And the, um, uh, it's, when you hear Putin talk, you know, he often puts heavy weight. Everything was done in accordance with the law, right? And, uh, uh, you know, it, these are laws that, uh, you know, uh, uh, most people would not, uh, uh, you know, recognize, and they're arbitrarily enforced. Uh, and uh, even a lot of the corporate raiding um, is done through legal or quasi-legal means, through, you know, taking over um, firms by, uh, uh, you know, bringing debt cases in regions of Russia that have friendly courts uh, for the plaintiff. And once one starts to get access to the cash flows uh, of these firms by these perhaps fictitious uh, debt issues or fictitious tax obligations, um, uh, uh, one can then easily bankrupt the firm or at least drive down the value of the firm to such a point that uh, uh, a rival can, you know, make the proverbial offer that cannot be refused to sell for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Uh, but, you know, they all come with lawyers. They all come with uh, documents to ensure that the uh, transfers are uh, recognized by, by Russian courts. And, uh, you know, they really do go through the effort to make sure all the legalize uh, are dotted and T's are crossed. So if that's a fuller understanding of kind of repression in Russia, you also take on the media element. Uh, you know, the assumption is the Russian media is, is not, uh, doesn't provide accurate representations of, of what's going on in Russia or abroad. And, you know, have a lot of material which shows that both either in the West, in terms of hacking in the West or in Russia itself, that you know, it's tough to game the media system 100% of the time. It's whack-a-mole. And the, the Russians as an educated, highly literate society and technologically oriented society are pretty much able to get around Channel One. It wasn't too hard to get around Channel One 50 years ago. It's not that hard to get around the proverbial Channel One right now. Yeah, I mean, Russians display what you know, political scientists call rational ignorance uh, in that uh, it's often just not worth the time and energy to become an informed citizen about many political issues of the day, in part because your ability to influence those decisions is so limited. So when you're trying to figure out how you're going to spend that marginal half hour or hour, are you going to, you know, uh, uh, 
go on the internet and try to read the New York Times or, or Medusa or some of the other kind of more credible sources about Russian politics, or are you just going to sit back and do the easy thing and flip on uh, Channel One? And uh, the Chinese are even more advanced than the Russians about this because what they do is create friction when people search for websites that provide more critical reporting about China so that it takes a few more seconds to load those more critical websites. Uh, and that is enough to deter many people uh, from, uh, uh, from looking at those uh, sites. And you know, I'm sure Russia is aware of this technique as well. So the, the, the key point is, is there are issues where it's easy to fool people, foreign policy issues. It's much, it's, you know, it's hard for average citizens to figure out what's going on in the outside world. On other issues though, like the economy, it's very difficult for the Russian government to avoid responsibility for the poor economic performance. Russians blame the government for the bad economic performance, despite the, uh, the heavy propaganda to the contrary. And, to, and the same thing on, on the foreign policy front, though you said it's harder to tell, you, you do characterize uh, Russian foreign policy, and I've seen other accounts that are similar, that you have it posing as a, as a great power, because it wants to pose as a great power, and it's important, in, uh, but that Russia's uh, abilities in terms of foreign policy or actual interference in, in uh, other countries' affairs is more limited than assumed. Your, your colleague at San Francisco State, Andrei Tsigankov, uh, terms it asymmetric rivalry. And I, I think that's a, a fairly consistent with, with how, you know, you, you might view it as well, that it's, it's, they can't fight all these battles in all these locations. They just don't have the resources anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to thread the needle, uh, in that chapter, uh, by pointing out that, um, Yeltsin would be ecstatic with the uh, current military hardware of Russia given what he inherited and uh, you know the difficulty of building up you know a modern army so in that sense you know what what has happened in the last 20 years in Russia is pretty impressive at the same time Brezhnev would be in a panic uh, uh, to have lost the the belt of East European allies to have lost the third world allies um, to uh, uh, be uh, you know see, uh, you know, NATO countries being, uh, you know, expanding closer to, to Russia's borders. And uh, one area, I argue that Russia is, has a comparative advantage in the so-called kind of weapons of the weak in foreign policy, the use of cyber, uh, the use of spying and subversion and poisoning uh, political uh, opponents, the uh, use of uh, you know kind of un uh, um, uh, military uh, you know kind of, um, unofficial military as we see in uh, the uh, you know Donbas in eastern Ukraine uh, and you know these are, these can be effective and we need to worry about them uh, uh, but we also need to recognize that Russia you know is far from the military giant of the Soviet Union. That said, you know, they are still are the only other great nuclear uh, superpower. So um, I think people in the military, in, in the popular media, we tend to get two visions of Russia, either as a state that's collapsing and its economy is the size of Texas, and we should, don't need to worry about it at all, to these kind of hyper 
um, uh, a kind of inflated sense of what Russia is and what it's able uh, uh, to do. So I tried to thread the needle on that chapter. Well, I think think you did a, a fine job in that. So you know, net net, uh, with the change in administration in the United States and sort of all this light being cast on Russia and what you found to be wanting in American academic treatments. You know, you say this is an important time to reassess for Americans, for Westerners, how they view view Russia. How, the time as we wrap this up, how do you want to sum that up? Sum that up so the, the listeners can then uh, turn to the book and get all the details. So, I mean, Russia is neither kind of as weak nor as strong as it's commonly made out to be. And that you can appreciate as a historian because that's a theme that's gone back, you know, through the, the communist period and through the, the, the czarist period um, as well. One thing that I, I tried very hard in the book to do is to recognize that there's great journalistic writing on Russia. There's great long-form writing on Russia about specific events and specific individuals. And that stuff is very useful. What this book does is something very different in that it tries to translate academic research uh, for a general audience. So I encourage people uh, to read the book in part because you'll learn a lot of uh, new um, facts. You'll learn about a lot of really interesting and clever studies about Russia that will give you a slightly more complicated picture. That is indeed the case. The book is Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia by Timothy Fry, professor at Columbia. Tim, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it very much.